Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to episode 2560, Raised Bed Gardening for Dummies. It was originally published on December the 5th, 2019. Looking ahead, I'm not sure, but I think this is the last Rewind episode that's prior to COVID becoming part of our daily lives. I, I really think so. If not, maybe there's one more. But we have turned the corner. As I said, we were doing a, uh, a whole series while I'm gone in Florida, of rewinds that are skill set based. And last week we kind of stayed in the wheelhouse of cooking and brewing, right? So we did sausage making, we did general cooking, we did, uh, and we did distilling and some entrepreneurship with the distilling episode with Jason Justice. Well, today we're, we're going into more of a homestead skill set, raised bed gardening. Um, And I'm not going to have very much new intro for this one because it, this show really does speak for itself. Um, but it came about because I started getting a lot of questions about gardening and realized I hadn't talked about it for a while. And as I was putting this skill set together, I thought, you know, when it comes down to the very basics of gardening, I probably haven't done that in a while. So let's run this rerun. Run, run this rerun. There's a tongue twister for you. So here we go. We're going to rewind back again. December 5th, 2019. Episode 2560. And remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast. How? Just do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. With that, let's dive into it. I want to start out with our quote of the day. And like I said, I've been loving the quotes of the day because there's always a quote of the day that fits the expert perfectly. This one is not by one of my favorite people, but the guy's got good and bad. He was a president of the United States, so that puts you low on the list as it is already. And he's the president of the United States that probably implemented more socialism in this country than any other one. So, of course, I'm talking about Franklin Roosevelt. But I'll quote anybody when they're right. And this is what he said about soil. The nation that destroys its soil destroys itself. And one of the things that Roosevelt did that was actually really good was through the Civilian Conservation Corps and did an awful lot of soil protection and soil management, so much so that Jeff Lawton actually considers Roosevelt the best president the United States ever had. He's coming at it with a different lens than, than I am when I say he's one of the worst presidents we've ever had. Um, but he was dead on about soil and soil conservation. We owe all life on Earth to two things, and I can't remember who said this, so I'm paraphrasing another quote here, uh, a, a few inches of topsoil on the fact that it rains. Without those two things, life on earth would not be possible. And the reason that quote fits for today is because if you want to grow food, you don't grow food. You grow soil, and you manage soil, and you feed soil. And then soil feeds and grows your food. And that's how I want to come looking at this today. And with the larger implication of that, beyond the episode itself, when we look at modern agriculture... For all of the talk of conservation and environmentalism, etc., and regulations, modern agricultural practices have made topsoil our number one export from this country. Now, as bad as that would be if we were packing it up and selling it, <laughs> at least we'd get something for it. We export it on the wind and in the water. 
because of bad management practices. So one of the things we can learn from larger agricultural practices is not only what to do as gardeners, but what not to do. And letting your soil go away is something you don't want to do. And just think about that as we go through today. So let's start off with what is the goal of a garden? Or moreover, what should the goal, the goal of a garden be? And I know I just said that we grow soil to grow plants, and that's that's true. But we we with a garden, the goal of the garden itself is to grow plants. And today we're talking about food mostly. We're coming at this from kind of a homestead production ment uh, mentality: peppers and tomatoes and greens and stuff like that. But When we think of a garden, that garden could be growing roses and dahlias and hydrangeas. It could be growing uh, more of a perennial herbaceous uh, garden. Uh, it could be growing a vegetable garden. It could be growing ground covers and just pure ornamentals. It, it could be just about anything. But what we're looking to do is we're looking to grow plants. And in that, we want to optimize the growth of we want versus what wants to grow in that spot. And that's that's the key difference between a garden and a native natural landscape. If we just have a native natural landscape, we let whatever grows grow. <laughs> Now, we can have kind of a hybrid where we use native plants, but that's not what I'm talking about. When we, we move into gardening, what we say is this spot, I want it to grow these specific things. And most of the time, those things would not grow there had we not intervened. However, something would grow there. There's very few places in nature where unless something has gone wrong or we're dealing with extreme climate types like desert or Arctic, that you look at a patch of ground and there's nothing there. And if you leave it alone through a process we call secession, it will eventually turn into forest in most of the country. Not everywhere, but in most places, you'll get some sort of a forest. Even on edge desert, you'll get a scrub forest. In the northeast, you will get a great, big, giant, mixed hardwood and conifer forest. If you do nothing. And that's what the land wants to do. It's going to grow what we call a weed. And it's going to use that as a pioneer species. It's going to start to build soil. Woody perennials are going to move into a shrub environment. Trees will emerge. That's what's going to happen. Unless we use a mechanical means of control like mowing. And then in that case... Unless we're growing a specific type of lawn, you're still going to get whatever would grow there on its own, and we're going to control it mechanically so once it gets to a certain height, it gets cut, and that's going to prevent the emergence of trees and woody perennials. But that's, that's what the piece of land would do. And what we want to do is change that. You're, you're, in some ways, you're fighting nature here. We want to work with nature, but we also have to put controls on nature because nature wants to success that piece of land. We want to control it. And we want it to grow peppers in Virginia, in this case, for the person that started this whole show. Peppers don't grow in, the, in Virginia. Now, I know they grow lots of peppers in Virginia. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that peppers are not native to Virginia. They're native to, like, Mexico and down into Central America and in parts of South America. That's where peppers grow natively as short-lived, meaning five to 15-year perennial shrubs. Peppers grow as shrubs that get as tall as small trees. I've grown peppers in a single season, ironically in raised beds, 
that the plant was so tall I had to reach above my head to pick peppers off of it. That's a real pepper. That's what peppers are designed to do. Now, it's in a long-growing climate, and they started early, and they were in really healthy soil. But that's what a pepper is. But now we want to grow a pepper as an annual in Virginia. So we have to optimize for that growth. And we have to somehow control the things that want to go in there and grow. High fertility will suppress some weeds, but some weeds like high fertility. Grass loves fertility. Grass is your number one weed in a garden. And I know people say in permaculture there are no weeds. Technically there are no weeds as in every plant has a function and a use. But it may not have a function in your garden. So you can say there are no weeds, but there are plants that will invade your garden, make your life miserable, and choke out the plants that you want to grow. Okay, You want to minimize your workload. We don't make a garden to make this control mechanism more difficult. We make a garden to make this control mechanism easier. If building a garden results in more work than just planting plants in the ground, we've done it wrong. And we want to give organization to chaos. And what I mean by that is we want to create a pattern that we can manage. We always talk about pattern recognition on the show. Well, when we create a garden, we want a delineation point where at this point, if something shows up, that ain't supposed to be there, somehow we control it, remove it, cut it, burn it, destroy it. In some way, this point, things don't go any further. And these plants need X amount of space between them to do well. They need from a resource standpoint and an area to grow standpoint. So now we need a way that we line out, whether that be in a straight line or it looks like random chaos, it doesn't matter. We... Now as the designer control how many grow and how many square feet, just like Mel teaches us with square foot gardening. Okay? And that's one of the reasons that square foot gardening works. By taking something like a 4 by 4 bed, breaking it up into 16 square feet, managing each square foot, when we go out and we look, okay, I have this pepper plant growing in one square foot. There's a weed underneath it. I know to either control that weed or recognize that weed is like, okay, that's a weed, but it's not a, it's not a real hard to get rid of weed. So if it was a piece of grass, I need to get rid of that and the rhizome with it as quick as I can, or it's going to invade. But if it's kind of a loose hairnet weed, I might let that thing grow a little bit. If it gets toward, you know, going to seed, I'll pull it out and throw it on the ground. And I can manage that one square foot of soil as a square foot, and the one next to it, it's got, let's say, six bean plants in it, or nine bean plants. I don't remember his planting pattern, whatever it is. Like, I manage that separately. I look at it and go, there's no weeds there today. I don't need to touch it. And then I have another square foot that's grown a couple uh, heads of lettuce. And when I cut that lettuce, if it's not cut and come again, then I'm going to maybe till the first inch or two of that soil. I don't want to deep till, but I'm going to till a little bit of it. And replant it with something new. And if I'm really managing that intensively and it's my lettuce area, I have a couple lettuce plants that are already ready to go in there or something else that I'm planting immediately. Or I've planted something from seed, doing succession planting, and at the time I harvest that lettuce, I let this next plant, this much larger, take over. And it was planted from seed already in there or what have you. And, and it works because of that, because it causes you to think in the pattern of control. But here's my issues with it. Number one, 
I know you can make a square foot garden a hundred foot long. You can make a four by one hundred foot bed and do square foot gardening. But most people don't. And most people start out because the book really centers on it with a four by four raised bed. And it's generally a fairly shallow four by four raised bed. And what that generally means is that bed is too small to maintain moisture unless you have a specific irrigation schedule set up for it. Most people don't. They manually water because it's small, so it'll be easy. And because of that, they're too small. Because of how well-drained raised beds are, it's almost impossible to keep that bed in an optimum state of moisture. Because this is how I need you to think about this. Imagine you have a, a shallow pan of water sitting on the counter next to your sink. It's, it's not very deep. It's a quarter-inch sheet pan deep, you know, like you make cookies in. You fill it to the top. How long will the water stay in that pan? And you're like, well, forever. And there's a hole in it. No, it'll evaporate, but it'll take time. Okay, now fill that pan with sponges and get those sponges soaking wet. How long will they stay wet? And they'll stay wet for a long time. Okay, now make five stacks of completely dry sponges on top of the wet sponges so they start wicking through osmosis. The water now attempts to equally distribute itself through that because everything's equal. Everything's equal in its absorbency in that environment. All the sponges can absorb about the same amount of water. You'll find that those sponges will get damp and dry out really, really fast. So now you take a raised bed, a very small 4 by 4 raised bed, and you sit it in the middle of a field being blasted by the sun and the wind, and you water the shit out of it. But you haven't had rain for a while, so the ground is very dry everywhere else. What happens? Well... The surrounding dry soil absorbs the water from the raised bed and dis disperses it outward, and the bed dries out really fast. And when you go with a 4x4 four four shallow raised bed, if you're not irrigating your grass and that ground is really dry, I mean, you'd been better off not making a raised bed and going into the soil. Uh, next, in the end, it's just a planting pattern. We've created a method around a pattern. And now it's supposed to be magic because it's a pattern. Patterns are useful. Patterns, patterns lead to good management. But in the end, it's just raised bed gardening. And if we rely on it as though it's its own thing, and we don't think about all the other things that are necessary, it, it has in, intrinsic weaknesses. You think because we threw a grid down, we've done something. We really haven't. That just for us to plant in a particular pattern. And it attempts to oversimplify. And when we attempt to oversimplify, and I'm all about simplification, when we attempt to oversimplify, people think that since it's presented so simply, there's no need to learn any more. And since there's no need to learn any more, when something doesn't work, something's wrong. But yet there's nothing to do to fix it. And, and, and that, to me, are the three key weaknesses. And don't get me wrong, I still love Mel. I think he gets a lot of people involved in gardening. I think what he teaches works for a lot of people. But it may work for, like, let's just talk about small bed draining out. Let's say suburbanite Joe goes and puts in some raised bed gardens, 4x4, four 4x8, four, four whatever, and they're pretty shallow. He puts the males mix in them, does everything Mel says, it works really good. But suburbanite Joe has a sprinkler system for his lawn. 
Suburbanite Tom does the same exact thing. He does not have a sprinkler system for his lawn. One has his entire property irrigated. The other guy is only trying to irrigate that dry spot in the middle that's raised up with good drainage. There's not a thing in any of his books about that alone. So that's my problem. That we're, Since we've oversimplified, troubleshooting the problem that should be really easy, i.e., you need to irrigate the hell out of that, or you need to relocate it and think about evaporation, or you need to make it deeper or bigger in-ground versus a raised bed, it doesn't happen because we've oversimplified. Everybody does the same. And that just doesn't work in a biodiverse world of gardening Where you look at the United States and, you know, we say we have, you know, zone one through, you know, which is the Arctic through nine, right? Or even ten, I guess, in parts of the United States. But we don't have ten biomes. We have thousands of biomes. Trust me, zone seven in Washington state is a lot different than zone seven in Texas. And there's probably a hundred other zone biomes in between those two geographic locations. We haven't even headed east yet. We're still west of the Mississippi River. Different pests, etc. So that oversimplification makes for a potential for real frustration. Because you have a square foot gardening group and you have all these people in New Jersey with irrigated lawns, with bountiful production out of a square foot garden, and you got you sitting in Nebraska going, what the hell, mine doesn't work. With no connection. That's the weakness. So... One of those we need to look at just the raised beds. So now just forget the grid, and let's just look at raised beds. What are the advantages of raised beds? Number one is, since you have to fill them, you have total control over your soil mix. Whether that's because you have really good stuff available on your land to put in there, and then you're going to amend it with things that lighten it, like something like vermiculite uh, or expanded shale or whatever. You can do that, peat, moss, whatever you want. Or if you're going out and buying compost and making a mix like Mel's mix from the book. Or you're getting a custom mix or you're using a bagged garden soil or whatever. You have complete control. And that means you start out with really good soil. But I've seen, we'll save it for the disadvantages, okay? Um, the next is generally you start then to be weed free. And usually you start disease free. Now, it doesn't take long for the biology and the surrounding soil to invade your new, pristine, beautiful soil that if it's not a good bioactive compost-based soil, has almost no life in it. But it starts out in a fairly pristine space, say a fairly pristine state. It has good drainage. Because we've gone up, we get good drainage. So if we live in a really wet climate, one of the things that can really hamper our plants is too much water. And it is often the case that whether it's a raised bed, in-ground bed, whatever, it's often the case that a poor performing garden is getting too much water rather than not enough. And we'll talk a little bit about how to figure that out as we go through this, but um, good drainage. It gives you a clear demarcation point between lawn, or whatever you call that area, and garden. And this is really helpful if, like, especially if you are enslaving your children to be garden tenders. And once you teach them, these are the 20 plants that mom and dad have growing in there. And if it ain't one of those, it doesn't belong. And if it's inside this box, pull it out and throw it over there. 
or pull it out and put it in this bucket and give the bucket to the chickens or whatever it is. It makes it real easy to manage for you and for people that maybe are not quite as dedicated as you. Because unless you have a weird kid, like when I was a kid and I was tending my grandfather's gardens and what have you, I, I loved it. Like it was, I was passionate about it from an early age. Most kids are like, I don't really want to do this. So if you if you're employing your your children or your spouse that's not quite as into it as you, it's real clear this is the point that this begins, and it creates kind of a, a, a kind of a barrier too. Like grass actually has to get up under or over top or something like that. Uh, with something as simple as a weed eater, anything that starts to grow up and over can just be taken off at the base. Now the downside is if it comes underneath, it's got a good start, but the grass is always your issue there. But it does give you that demarcation point, kind of a defensive wall. And it's easy to install irrigation during construction. So our, our, our fellow walker here who emailed this question in said he wants to do PVC irrigation to the bed that he could hook a hose up to. So you can figure out whatever pattern of irrigation you want when you're doing a raised bed. Basically build it as though it was buried, stick it inside the bed and fill it up with dirt. And put, you know, hedge sprinklers or do drip irrigation or whatever it is you want to do. It can all be, all the piping can be routed and buried before you add the dirt. And that's very, very convenient. I mean, I really, really like that. I would say to Walker, hook a hose up to? Depends on what you mean. But I would be really, unless it's a really long distance, which probably means the location is not optimal. It'd be better for you to go ahead and dig yourself a trench and bury a line that goes out there than use a hose. Hoses are on top of the ground. Hoses get kicked by kids, bit by dogs, run over by lawnmowers, etc. Grass grows over top of them, and then you can't move them. So I'm big on burying pipe to the location. Now, if the hose is a small leader hose because there's a hose bib popped up there, and you want to do something like put in line a mechanical timer... So that you can just walk out to your garden and turn that timer to five minutes or ten minutes or whatever it is, and that way you can't forget to turn it off. Okay, okay, that's 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 viable. It's one way of doing some irrigation automation. It's not full automation, but it's useful. And it, it if you go out of town for a couple of days, it's easy to tell a spouse or a kid go out there eight o'clock in the morning and turn the timer to five. Go out there when you get home from school or work or whatever and turn the timer to five or whatever it is. And, and you know that it's going to get done and you know that it'll turn itself off and you won't flood things. Right? That's, that's an easy thing. And, and, and so that, that would make sense. But just on the irrigation, I want to bring the pipe underground as close to the point of delivery as possible all the way if it makes sense. Okay, so as you might imagine, if we have advantages, we probably also have disadvantages. That's a basic pattern that we see in life. There's almost never a thing like everything about this thing is good, and there's no disadvantages. So what are the disadvantages? Number one, the cost of construction. When I was a kid, the cost of construction of a garden bed at my grandfather's was my labor. We had some string. And we would lay out nice straight lines for a bed in between a couple of stakes that went in the ground. I would take a thing called an edger, which was basically, uh, it looked like a, a flat um, shovel, a, a flat hoe, but it wasn't like a hoe. It didn't have a bend to it. It was like straight down. And then called it an edger. 
And I would go and cut an edge so that it was a nice, clean edge between the lawn and the bed, and I would cut that out, and then I would dig it and turn it over, and any of the sod that was in there, if, if it was, we would just basically turn it upside down, put it in the bottom of the bed and bury it and let it decompose. Now, again, the advantage is you have a clean demarcation point in a wall. That meant that the grass immediately wanted to start growing back into the bed, and you had to continually manage it. We did most of that management with an edger. The same tool that we used to, to cut it, we just go through there and just hit the edger along the edge every couple of weeks through the growing season, and that did a lot to prevent creepers from coming in there. But the cost was nothing. If we wanted to add another bed, whether it was a bed that was four by eight or a bed that was four by a hundred, there was no material to be purchased. Now we might have added some composted manure or something like that, but that was all free. Now you may not have access to free stuff like that. You know, may not have a, like my grandfather had a neighbor with a horse. We had all the ho and they didn't garden. We had all the horse manure we could ever want for complete fun. Well, it was me. Take old 1930 circa wheelbarrow that they don't make anymore, made out of steel with a steel wheel, and pushed across the street up the hill to where the barn, where the horse stall was, and fill it up and bring it down and put it in the compost pile. You know, and a few months later, you had some composted manure to work with. I mean, it was it was free. There was no cost of construction. There was no cost of fill materials. Even if we're bringing in like some compost or, or some you know some extra soil that we're putting on the surface, it's a hell of a lot less material to bring in than it is to fill you know a 10, 12-inch deep bed. You start to realize there's a lot of soil. You start buying, bringing in by the yard instead of the bag when you build a significant size bed. So there's no cost to fill materials, and they dry out more quickly in hot weather or hot climates or dry climates or things like that because they're well-drained. They initially require more labor. I mean, you in some ways that's true, in some ways it's not. But you have to build the bed where if we're going to garden in the ground, all we have to do is dig the garden. And we probably shouldn't build a raised bed over nice, strong turf and just fill it up. We can lay compost and stuff, I mean, cardboard and stuff, or weed blocker down, but really that turf should go away. It's almost no matter what you do, those rhizomes from turf grass are going to come up through that bed, and you're going to have a real problem. So we probably have to bust the turf anyway. So once the turf's busted, digging a garden in most environments is not the hard work. It's the turf busting. Um, and then they are semi-permanent structures. Let's say that one of the beds my grandfather had had me put in, he decided we don't need that bed this year. You know what we did? Absolutely nothing. Just started mowing over it, and the grass would take back over. Let's say that you decide you put four garden beds in, and you really put them in, in the wrong place. You want to move them. There's no box to disassemble or move. There's no extra fill to move. You just start in a new place. And with you know deep mulching, weed blocking, tarping, If you do that now, you can end up having no turf busting to do because you can kill turf grass with tarp. You lay down some soil amendments and some and some uh, mulch in the area you want to garden, and you take a heavy-duty tarp and you put it over that and you block the sun and solarize it. When you open that up this spring, you're ready to go. And you can take the entire area 
that you want to turn in the garden, and you can kill it all, and then you can mulch in between your rows that we'll talk about more later. And you've, you've done no real work. And that tarp is about your only big expense, and it's not that big of an expense. You get a pretty damn big tarp for cheap. And you, when you're done with that project, you fold that tarp up and you have it. You can use it again for other things, whatever tarp things you, what other tarpy things you want to do with it, including loading it to your neighbor so they can put a garden in. So you can do an in-ground garden with almost no work, and the soil be amended by microbes. So you really need to think about why are you doing a raised bed. And there can be some reasons for that. If you live where I do, and, and, and a, your best place to put a garden has about two inches of dirt, whether you're doing it with a surrounding material like wood or, or concrete, or whether you're doing it just by piling it up, because you can do that. You just do raised beds that are just piled up beds. You're going to do something because you're not going to grow vegetables in two inches of dirt on top of a rock slab. So if you have good soil... I'm going to advise you to grow on the ground. Now, let's talk about if you're going to do raised beds, because it's just what you want. You want the look. You want the functionality. You just think it's easier. You don't care what Jack says about good in-the-ground growing. Okay, fine. Here's basically what you have to pick from. You have timbers, which are really a form of treated lumber, but I'm going to put that one separately, because you can do things like, you know, 2 by 10 treated lumber and build a box, or you can do something like landscape timbers and do kind of a, you know, a, a log cabin style build, which is what I tend to do when I'm doing them. You can do cinder blocks or other man-made hardscape materials. Like there are some materials that are made to make raised beds. Generally, those are best for kind of softer designs. We generally make a raised vegetable garden bed in more of a square, rectangle type shape, straight lines. It's easy for management. A lot of your man-made materials that are like for making stone walls and stuff are really great for raised beds like on the edge of a house. We want to create a softer, rounded line or something like that. Or you have natural stone and rock. There's not a lot of other options. Or you have no structure, just a piled-up raised bed, which is often a really good way to go. There's often nothing wrong with that, except it's a little bit more difficult to control your invasion from outside unless you kind of... We block the whole area, not just the bed itself. If you want to ensure that you constantly battle grass in your garden bed, have grass grow up to the edge of your garden instead of grass go up to the edge of your garden area, if that makes sense. I mean, you're just asking for it when you do that. So if we have like four beds, four rows, and we have about three foot of space, four foot of space in between them, and then we have kind of a perimeter of about four foot all the way around, and that's all weed blocked and all mulched all the time, it's a lot easier to keep runners out of the garden bed itself because we have kind of this buffer zone, this neutral zone, especially if we employ good weed blocking there and good mulch to kind of keep things down. And we can use things like weed flamers or whatever to kind of like, if stuff gets into that buffer zone, let's kill it before it gets there. But if we let that grass grow right up, and that's how you see most people do raised beds. They have a raised bed, and you have wood, and there's your demarcation point, and the lawn goes right up to it, and they mow right past it. And especially if you don't have an irrigated lawn, and you're irrigating that garden, that grass is sending runners under there constantly. So... 
you're left with maybe taking something like a hard rubber of some sort, impermeable rubber, like cheap pond liner is a good way to go, and dig a one-foot trench around your garden and sink it into the ground and have it come up the inside of the raised bed, stapled to the wall, and then fill your bed. Then the only way that grass can get in there is to go up and over. That's a way you can do that if you want to put the extra labor into it. That's about the only way that I know of. It's the same type of blocking technology imposed on bamboo. Because grass rhizomes can only go in the first couple inches of soil. So if you get down six, eight inches into the subsoil and you have a hard barrier, it becomes not impossible, very difficult for the grass to get in from underneath. So it's up to you how you want to do it. But that's, that's kind of your construction materials. Let's talk about the advantage of timbers and treated lumber. They're straight, easy to square up, easy to screw, bolt, nail together, fast. And they're very clear. You, you know, you want to, if you want to build a four by eight bed, you get eight foot lumber, zip in half, you got your four foot lengths, you got your eight foot lengths, it's one cut uh, per course. And if you're doing something like a box out of, of, of treated uh, lumber instead of landscape timbers, you know, it's, it's one cut. You get three eight-foot boards, let's say three eight-foot two-by-tens, cut one of them in half and bolt it together in a box. You're done. Beautiful. Cinder blocks and other man-made hardscape materials are permanent. Now, they may not be permanent until the next ice age, but as far as your lifetime... A cinder block is not going to decompose. It's not going to rot. It's not going to get a fungus into it. Carpenter ants aren't going to, or termites aren't going to invade it. It's going to outlast even the best treated lumber, no matter how you manage the treated lumber. Um, it generally will cost you more money, or it won't look as good. Cinder block raised beds don't look good. You can do cinder block raised beds for about the same price as a good treated lumber, but it just doesn't look as good. And unless you mortar it, it's got a weakness in that it can shift and move and stuff can grow in between it and what have you. Um, when you move into like man-made hardscape, simulated rocks and stuff like that, it's going to cost more money. But they're going to fit tighter together. They're designed to usually have an overlap, so two or three layers. They're designed to kind of stagger just a little bit and use that overlapping uh, lip. And they look really good. So, But you're going to pay more money for them. When it comes to natural stone and rock, the issue with that is unless you're going to get really good at doing dry stack stone, it's got all these little gaps in it and stuff like that, and it's really difficult to manage mechanically your invaders. So the one good thing about, let's say, a timber-framed raised bed is if we put that rubber blocker in it, And the only way that rhizome-based invaders can get in is, is over the top. And it's a nice straight wall, and it's a good solid piece of wood, and you got your old-fashioned string whacker. You go by there once a week and just whack the weeds at the base of it, and you don't have any invaders. You get seeds and stuff, but you don't have any creepy-crawly invaders coming in. You do that with stone, and it's very difficult to manage that way. So you got to figure out how you want to manage. Like I'm not saying any of these things are good or bad. I'm saying like, how are you going to manage it? And you got to think about the choice of construction material, and then how that affects management. Next up, my rules for raised beds: with four feet wide, unless there is a compelling 
reason to do otherwise. And the reason is, if you're putting in a 16-foot bed, like our friend wrote the letter, the cost differential to go with 4 by 16 versus 3 by 16 is very, very small. But the cost differential to put two 3-foot beds in is fairly significant. It's like getting an extra 25% of another bed for free almost. The, well, then why don't we go five feet? Why don't we go six feet? Because four feet is optimal for most adult and even you know somewhat grown young people to be able to be on either side of that bed and easily reach the center. And if something's easy to reach, you'll reach in and do what you need to do. And if it's hard to reach, you won't. And the longer you take to do things like pull weeds out, especially certain types of weeds, the more of a problem it becomes. So four foot is the optimum width for double reach. Three foot doesn't make a lot of sense unless it fits the space. There is a tool you're using optimized for a three foot bed. If you look at a lot of people that are spin farmers like Curtis Stone, they use a three foot bed. And the reason they use a three-foot bed is if they grow a three-foot bed of baby spinach, they have a mechanical harvester that's designed to cut a three-foot swath. So one cut, the whole bed's cut. That's a compelling reason. If someone is doing something up against uh, a structure on the side of a house, it, you could reach three It might be a little hard to reach three-foot, but you can reach the back wall. It might be a little extra effort for that. But if you had to go four feet and you're up the side, now you really can't reach it. Right, so maybe it's two foot, maybe it's two and a half, you know, maybe it is three foot, whatever works for you. But up against a structure where you can't access the back, okay. You have a given area, and then if you go with three foot beds, and then you have enough space in between the beds to work, and enough buffer around, and you can actually get more square feet of growing space with three-foot beds and four-foot beds allowing for the space in between and the buffer, that would be a compelling reason. My point is, unless you can explain concisely and clearly why you're going thinner than three feet, don't do it. Because the more narrow bed will dry out faster. And no one's ever like, gee, I wish I had less space in this bed. Once you start getting production, you're going to wish you had you know, more square feet. So if we do a 16-foot bed in length and we go 16-4, we get 16 square feet more. Let's put that in perspective. You know that bed that everybody's in love with from the square foot gardening that started all this crap? That's a 16-square-foot bed. You're getting that for almost free. Yes, there's more material that has to go in there, but in the particular case of the guy that wrote this, he's got good soil to work with. I'm still thinking maybe you should be growing in the ground. Lasagna, tarp, kill... Grow in the ground. And we'll get to some things. Because this, this all works whether it's a raised bed or not. All right? Uh, but four foot wide. If your ground really sucks, like mine, and you have rock or something like that, and the reason you're doing a raised bed is because there just ain't enough dirt here to grow shit in. If you read Mel's book, he'll tell you six inches is deep enough. If, you're, if you are suburbanite Tom and you have an irrigated yard, and you could be growing in the ground, and you're not just because you want raised beds for the convenience, he's totally right. If you're sitting on a baked piece of limestone-infused ground 
in north central Texas with summer temperatures over 100 degrees, he's out of his flipping mind. Six inches is not deep enough. You're asking to bake your plants to death. So if your ground is crappy, then you want to go deeper, like minimum 10 inches on the depth, and a foot would be better. Now that can be that can include the dirt you do have that's that's decent. So if you have two inches of dirt and you go ten inches on your bed, you've got twelve inches of dirt. But if you go six inches, four inches for a raised bed, and you're doing the raised bed because the soil sucks, it's not good enough. You're gonna wish you went deeper. Next, be sure of your location before building them because they're semi permanent. So you want to really make sure that you really want to garden there for a really long time before you build a raised bed. Especially if we're doing landscape timbers, stone, cinder block. You know, if it's just a box of 2x10s that you're screwing together, well, you can screw it apart and spread the dirt out if you decide you don't want to garden there anymore. But when you're building more permanent structures, you really need to think about it. It's a totally different situation, but Joel Salton says of fencing. Put up cheap temporary fencing. That cheap temporary fencing is still where you put it in two years. You can put in a permanent fence. If it ain't been there two years, don't make it permanent because you might figure out that's not a place you really wanted a fence. Uh, I'm going to tell you that I am taking down some temporary fencing right now. And that little tip right there, well, it cost me a couple hundred bucks to put the temporary fencing in. Not putting the permanent fencing in where I eventually didn't want it anyway saved me a shitload of money. Remember, this stuff gets expensive fast. We want the garden to produce more than we put into it financially, or it's a loser. So, again, really consider whether raised beds are right for you. They, I just put in four huge ones. But they form a structure, they form seating, they form a landscape element, and they're a raised bed. And I don't really have a choice if I want to grow on the ground here. So I have a compelling reason. Make sure you have a compelling reason before you grow in, you know, just, just grow on the ground. We want to do it this way. You look at farmers and even you know, market gardeners and things like that that are growing the quarter acre. You never see them growing with constructed raised beds. You might see them growing with hilled up raised beds, but you never see borders on them. You know why? They can't afford to. So we can learn some things from agriculture even when we move into the world of permaculture and gardening. And that's one of them. Um, next. Make sure, as I'm kind of saying already, that they really make sense. Sometimes they are the best option, but make sure you know why. Employ weed blocking. On the bottom, on the side, however you can. If you can figure out a way to make it harder for weeds to get into your area, do that thing. And if you have soil that you can trench a little bit into, you know, maybe renting a trencher from like, uh, you know, a rental, and I think they have them at like Home Depot and Lowe's. And trenching around the whole garden area and putting in a rubber blocker, that might make sense. It might make sense. It might not. It all depends. But definitely employ weed blocking. If you're putting in a raised bed, put two layers of cardboard down on the subsoil after you bust the sod. And then get that 25-year weed blocking cloth and put it on top of the cardboard. And then put your fill in. And, it, and, and do that past your beds. I'm talk about that more toward the end. But go make that buffer zone. Next, get over your fear of treated lumber 
or don't use wood. I, I mean it. Like people that are, well, this CCA, they don't even use CCA anymore. And by the way, they should because it wasn't that bad and it worked better than what they use now. If you're not going to use pressure-treated lumber or pressure-treated landscape timbers and you're going to make a raised bed and you're going to irrigate with it, you are lucky if that thing does not rot to pieces in two years. So if you are going to do a raised bed and you are afraid of something like a treated lumber product, then you're better off building forms and pouring concrete than using non-treated. It will pay itself back in five to six years. Don't use untreated wood. Just don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And there's another little issue I have with Mel Bartholomew. He said, go get free wood from construction sites. Well, if you can, it used to be easy to do. Now everybody's always worried about getting sued, and they're a lot more efficient with waste and all. When I was a kid, I used to get all kinds of free wood from construction sites. And then he says, you know, it, well, what happens when it rots? Well, just go get some more free wood. Well, now i got to rebuild the whole damn thing. You know, I, I'm not big on rebuilding things more than we have to. So I don't care if you don't want to use treated lumber. I think it's silly. I don't think there's any risk at all with modern pressure-treated lumber. Zero risk to your health by using it in your garden. Zero. But if you don't believe that, then use rock, use concrete, use cinder block, use you know preformed, man-made, hardscape, or don't do anything at all from a standpoint of, of, of a barrier. And just doing ground. Because it's just not worth it. It's not worth the time, the money, and the effort. And consider heavy mulch and weed blocking around and in between the beds. My view is it might be worth buying freaking um, EDPM, the cheaper EDM pond liner. They sell it at like Home Depot and Lowe's by the roll. You roll out as many feet as you want and go a perimeter all the way around your guard. So it's impossible for anything to come up through that stuff. It really is. I've put it down in places and I mean, I'm sure sooner or later, but if that stuff lasts 25 years minimum, if given any reasonable shade from UV, and even when it doesn't get it, it still tends to last over 20 years. So if it's buried under mulch, it's probably going to be there in 50 years. You know, and there's some other options too, like Get on next door and say things like, are you replacing the liner in your pool? I'll come take your old liner away for free. Pool liner would work. It's pretty much the same stuff. You know, anything like that. And again, I'm talking about in between your beds and around your beds. I would say minimum, if you want, if you want, you don't have to do this. Grass right up against the side of it, some sort of barrier to keep it from getting in and weed whacking. It'll work. Eventually, you'll have to deal with some grass that gets in there. But you can do that if that's what works for you. If you have the time and the tenacity and the desire to make your life easier long term, if you have at least a four-foot border around the beds that things grow in, all the way around it, and it's blocked with something like that, managing grass getting in there will be so much easier. Then mulch the shit out of everything. So you have nice, fresh mulch that you walk on in between your beds. And you, that's a season. So what do you do? You do this now. You garden all the way into next fall. And in late fall, what do you do? You bring fresh mulch in. You take the old mulch that you've been walking on that's well broken down and has sucked up all the fertility that's washed out of your beds. 
and you shovel it into your beds as your new mulch, and you tarp them for the winter, and you put your fresh mulch on the ground, around, and in between your beds. And now you basically are composting in place. And because you don't let those wood chips break all the way down the soil, they don't form something that the grass can grow, and you pretty much take it down almost till there's none left and put them all in your bed and put all fresh mulch down. So now you have a new nitrogen uptake cycle going on, new composting cycle going on. It's not really attractive to weeds and stuff that grow in between. That's if you really want to do it and be 100% in control, that's the, the closest that you're going to get. Let's talk about building soil real quick. Now, I did an episode not that long ago, episode 2384, it's the beginning of this year, called Building Soil Fertility, Biology, and Structure in the Garden. More than you'll ever need to know about soil building. So I'm going to refer you to that, and I'm going to keep this section short today. And if you, if you go back and listen to that one, that's one to listen to multiple times to really get the understanding of how to build soil down. But use my fertility regimen. I also have a link today, all the stuff I recommend, the Garrett juice, the, the Dr. Earth products, everything. It's, it's all available, most of it on Amazon. We do have a sponsor called Fish Newer. I trialed that this year. I was really impressed. The beds that I used it on did produce better than the ones I didn't. But you don't have to use the whole thing. I'm going to tell you if you use the Dr. Earth fertilizer or any good balanced organic fertilizer and the Garrett Juice product for both soil drench and spray, and you do that, you'll go a long way to getting really good production. A long way. Especially if you're mulching and composting and you add that, you almost can't fail. Everything else in that program, and there's like seven products in it, just makes it a little bit better. Because we're using fungal inoculation, we're using a calcium-magnesium product, uh, which is, is really one of the primary deficiencies we're using in an iron and zinc product. So when we look at iron, zinc, calcium, magnesium, when it comes to micronutrients, those are your four biggest things that plants become deficient in. And the thing is that your plant, in absence of magnesium, can't use calcium effectively. And your, your plant and some of calcium can't use magnesium. They need both, just like you do. So you can have all kinds of calcium in your soil, but if you don't have enough magnesium bioavailable to your plants, they can't get to it, and vice versa. And iron and zinc work the same way. So by using those two combo products, whichever one you're deficient, I don't have to worry about it. It's fire and forget. And, it, and you, you know, once you use them at the beginning of the year, you watch your plants for things like chlorosis, etc., and you don't use them again unless your plants say, hey, I need something. And then you just kind of go to the well and you give it everything. And they just pick up and they roll. And which one was it? Do you care? It's, 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 you're talking At that point, you're talking pennies in application. Because you're just spot applying where a plant says, I need help. So go listen to that and look up the, the fertility regimen and use that. And odds are that if you did that, and I'm talking to, to, to Walker who sent that in, you probably would have had better production last year just by using my fertility regime. No matter what you did, you probably would have been okay, especially in your climate. Your climate's an easy climate. It really is. Um, another, and we talked about this already, but mulch, then mulch, and then mulch again. If you have bare soil showing, you are wrong. Everything will be harder. Now, I think you can over-mulch. 
So when I say mulch, mulch, mulch again, I mean keep everything covered with mulch. But if you have like eight inches of wood chips surrounding a lettuce plant, it's going to start to compost and burn that lettuce plant. So we don't need a huge amount of mulch, especially if we're using wood chips. A couple inches. That's all we need. And I, I love people like, well, if I have two inches mulch, how do I plant my beans from seed or whatever? Make a furrow in the wood mulch. Make a furrow in the soil. Put your bean seeds down. Cover it. Lightly sprinkle mulch on top of the beans. And leave the big pile that you've pushed to both sides of mulch up. Wait till your beans get up above that pile and then push the pile back around them. That's all. It's not hard. Mulch. Uh, my favorite mulch is mixed hardwood wood chips. And I don't care if there's some conifer in there and stuff too. Mixed wood mulch. That That is the, the number one mulch that I use. Wood mulch that's broken down for a season is better for the garden itself. That's why I like let's mulch the perimeter, let's mulch the in-between, and then let's take that mulch once a season and bring it up onto the garden bed as we go into the next growing cycle. That to me, and if we can do that in the winter, during if we're, if we're letting the garden rest in the winter, if we put it in there before we tarp it and we tarp it, ugh. When you pull that tarp off in the spring to plant and you stick your hand in that soil, it's worm city. And that is just... If you got worms, you're golden. You almost can't have lots of worms and not be fertile. Because what, what are the worms eating? If there, there has to be nothing there for the worms to eat for there to be no worms. And if there's something there for the worms to eat and the worms are eating it, the worms themselves are making fertility for you. Plus they're making structure. Okay? Next. In the winter, cover crop or tarp. Or any time not in use. If you're going to say, I'm not going to grow anything in that bed for a month. Like, it's middle of summer, you've harvested from it, it's too hot. Mulch it, tarp it. Cover crops are useful, but some of them make your work a little harder. Another method is, remember the little Taco Bell girl? Should we, or, not Taco Bell, it's a taco something. Old El Paso taco shells, right? And the family's like, Should we have soft tacos tonight or hard tacos tonight? She's like, why can't we have both? And they hold her up on their shoulders and cheer. Yay, right? There's a gift of that. We use that on Facebook sometimes to play with people. Why not both? Why not, if you if you finish your gardening up in fall, you start to get into some frosts and some freezes and stuff like that, and you can still get a cover crop to grow, but your annual production and all is going to get hit with those frosts. So something like winter pea or something like that will do well. Well, do a cover crop. Let that cover crop grow till about now, Christmas time-ish. And then when it's nice and up, throw the wood mulch on it, cover it with a tarp. It'll die, it'll rot back, it'll feed the ground. You see, now you're starting to do soil management. And you're doing it in a way that takes as little work as possible. Instead of... so. Now, instead of bringing in a whole bunch of compost or a whole bunch of straw mulch or something like that, you have to go procure somehow, either get it from somebody to give it to you or buy it or whatever, and then haul it in. You're bringing in a handful of seed, right? You throw it on the bed. You grow your next fertility. You take your pathway wood mulch, and you throw it on top of your fertility. You throw, a, you throw your new mulch down. 
and then tarp your bed. When you go to plant in the spring, there can't be any weeds. They can't grow under there. It's probably mushrooms and worms and other soil critters, and life is good. Life is great. Right? And then compost, compost, always compost. Everything that you produce that's a food waste, anything that's organic material, should never go to a landfill. I don't care if you have a worm bin. I don't care if you go get some chicken wire and make a four-foot round circle of chicken wire and set it under your oak tree in the back of your yard and just throw everything in there and do the shittiest composting method you can. You just keep throwing shit in there until it's full. You make another one and throw shit in there until it's full. And you make another one and throw shit in there until it's full. And by the time you fill up the third one, you look at the first one and it's like half full now. And you pull the wire up and set it down and take that stuff and put it in your garden. I don't care what Elaine Ingham says. It will grow the shit out of stuff for you. If you throw away your food waste, you are throwing away fertility and you're adding to a landfill, which doesn't make any sense. You're, 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 you're taking a resource and turning it into a problem. If you have chickens, all I did for my chickens for composting is I took some cinder blocks and I made a square. I used cinder blocks because it's what I had. I had leftover cinder blocks from a project. I throw everything in there, and when, they, when the chickens and ducks come home at night, before they go into their house, they go in there and see what they can find. And when it's full... I have another block, square, or center block, and I throw it in there. And eventually, I take the straw out of the chicken coop, and I put it on top of whichever one of those is the most full. Then they go in there, and they play with that. Eventually, I throw a tarp over it and leave it alone for six months. Don't do shit. And all of a sudden, I got a yard of compost for free with almost no work. If you're a small suburban place without chickens or whatever, get a worm bin. But whatever you do, compost. If you have very little waste, do in-bed composting. So how do we do in-bed composting? Just get yourself a little bucket or something like that. Keep it by the sink. Throw your banana peels or whatever in there. Once every day or so, go out to your garden, pull weeds. And when you're doing the weeding, lift up your mulch. And take your garden, your, your kitchen scraps, put them under your mulch, and cover them back up. That's all you do. That's probably the easiest thing you can do. And all little soil organisms are going to eat it. You're not, banana peel's not going to start growing or something like that. And it makes you go out there, and then you frequently weed, which is another one of my rules. Weed and weed often. Next, I want to talk a little bit about bed orientation and location. My number one rule for your garden is, if you can't see it, you probably won't take care of it. And what did I just do? I just put in a big garden site around my pond where I can't see it from my house. But you know what? I have to go there every day. I designed that system to be my zone one, even though it's out of sight. Because it's out of sight, but not out of mind. I have a greenhouse back there, an aviary back there. There's a path. It goes right through there. So if it is where you can't see it, it better be a place that even if you don't want to play with your garden today, you're still going to walk past it, you're still going to look at it, and you're going to still be so close to it, it's easy to touch. So where you can see it or where you will naturally pass it, that's where one of the parts of your location. Next, to me, and this can change, 
In some northern climates, with less intense sun, you need more sun. But in most climates in the United States, where you get hot summers, the best, best, best thing you can have is strong eastern sun and afternoon shade. So the east side of a building, a structure, or a tree lot is usually best. How far away from that shade creator has an awful lot to do with how long your days are and how intense your sun is. Six hours of sun here is equal, I'm convinced, to eight hours of sun in Pennsylvania. Easy. It might be four to eight, honestly. And here's what I mean by that. Where we lived in Pennsylvania, I'm not talking about when I was a kid, I'm talking about when I worked there for three years, my wife and I lived there together. She had this beautiful garden that I built for her out in front of the house. It was more like a landscaped, you know, pretty garden. And she went down to Home Depot and decided the easiest thing to grow, and she was right, was marigolds. Marigolds are one of the easiest ornamental flowers you can grow. They're really strong. They, uh, they, they, they repel pests. They look pretty. They have a long growing season. They have flowers all year. I mean, they're a great flower to grow. So she planted them. And I had kind of a soft architecture that I'd done for along the sidewalk in that kind of bent back into the house. Well, there was about three foot of this strip that was over 50 foot long of marigolds. It was really pretty. About three foot of it, when it curved back in, as the sun went over the house, the house shaded that three foot that cut back in about an hour before the house shaded the whole thing. And the marigolds in that space were pathetic. They're a sun-loving flower. And that one hour, maybe two hours at the, at the peak of the differential during the season, they didn't die. They were just little and scrawny and everything else is big and beautiful. So we found some other things that like that little bit of shade to put in there. In Texas, those would have been, that, that four feet would have been the best marigolds. Because our sun's so much more intense. So you have to balance that recommendation with how long you have intensity of your sun. All right. Next, wind can be your enemy for many reasons. Set up wind blocks. Wind causes excessive evaporation, which leads to needing more irrigation. Wind is usually the most intense in most of the temperate climates when the spring and the winter. We don't care in the winter because we're not growing outside in the winter in general. If we are, we're using, you know, greenhouses or grow hoops or, you know, something, you know, solar blankets or whatever that are blocking the wind. So we don't care. But in the spring, what are we doing in the spring? We're either planting seeds or all those little plants. So you have a little pepper plant, about six, eight inches tall. You paid good money for it down at the hardware store or the market or whatever feed store or Home Depot or Lowe's and... You set it out there, and it's nice and warm, and it doesn't freeze, and and then it's just a flap, 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 that beats the shit out of it. Leaves are flying off of it. So we need to be thinking about temporary or permanent wind-blocking solutions in our gardens. In, in my garden in Arlington, I really didn't have a way that I could put any kind of permanent wind-blocking in. So I had some plywood and just some two-by-fours and some center blocks. And right up against the beds, when the, the primary way the wind would come from, 
for like the first month, I would just set those pieces of plywood up there and brace it so that they didn't get the shit beat out of them with the wind. And by the time we got through that really windy period and the plants had toughened up because they were still getting some wind, right? So that toughens them up. They've gotten bigger. They've got their roots settled in. And about the time my wife had got, really wish you'd get rid of that. It's kind of ugly. It would all go in the storage shed. But we can do things like plant a hedgerow so we can have a garden, a buffer, and a hedgerow. That can be a fedge, which is a food hedge. It can be an ornamental hedge. But anything like that's going to create a wind block. We can think about structures, right? Where are our fences? Where are our buildings? As long as we get enough solar exposure, if we have a naturally occurring wind block, let's utilize that. Everything that can block wind is good and understand wind set down. So you have a fence. Oh, that blocks the wind. Well, it blocks the wind. It creates like a wind shadow. So the way you think about this, go look at a fence as the sun's rising. And at some point, you'll see the shadow comes out about as far as it ever will, and it starts to recede back. Think about it kind of like where that shadow's at its peak of length. You've got wind coming up over. It's kind of like that. And that wind comes up over. It's blocked, and it sets back down. And sometimes what looks like a block is the worst thing because if it creates the set-down effect right on top of your plants, now you don't just have wind coming across it, but you have wind dropping down onto it. So one of the things you can do is just do something simple like get a couple little sticks during a windy day, put some strings on them, and just stick them in the ground at various locations of a thing that you think is a wind block and determine where your set down is. I told you I can't do it for dummies, but it's not hard, right? That's simple. But it's just the things that people don't think of, and that's why you're – because I want you to look at it this way. Let's say you put your plants out. Wind beats the shit out of them. Overall, you do a pretty good job. Your production's lackluster. How much of that is because your plants got the shit beat out of them and they got stressed and they didn't establish as strong as they could have as early as they could have? It's these little things that you learn over time. Next, manage your garden. This is kind of just your bullet points for managing your garden. Number one, weed early, weed often. If you're not weeding a couple times a week, you're setting yourself up for failure. It is real easy, honest to God, to weed almost every day, even a pretty big garden. My grandfather's garden was, trying to remember from memory, about 12 beds, each about 25 feet long, each 4 foot wide, about 3 foot of path in between each bed. And then sometimes we did longer beds across the hole, so those were all vertical, so going horizontal, we did like corn and stuff, we would do like an 8 foot bed of corn, and then we wouldn't grow in that spot for a year because the corn takes so much. And I would walk that main garden every every morning. It wouldn't take me five minutes that big of a garden because I did it every day. Because all I did was just walk down there with a bucket, and we had a little tiny chicken coop with a few chickens in it and a goose, and I would just walk through that garden and just pull up all the weeds, put them in the bucket, and then go let the chickens out and dump it for the chickens. I was a kid, and it took me that much time. I mean, during the school year, as we were starting early in the season, I did it before I went to school. It, it just wasn't a big deal. And it wasn't, I know I said I was kind of geeky with gardening and stuff, and I always liked it, and I did. But it wasn't, I mean, even if I did, it wasn't that big of a chore. I'd much rather do that than mow the grass. 
It just wasn't work, but it's because I did it all the time. And as I got older and more involved and I started doing my own gardens and I didn't do that, I can tell you that that's where it leads to being a real pain in the ass. Next, keep records of what grows, when things happen, etc. If you know every year tomato blight starts about X time, maybe you can figure out how to get more production out of your tomatoes by planting them earlier. Or maybe you figure out that it's not worth growing tomatoes where you're at. Or maybe, like, even though I'm talking about growing in the garden today and in the ground, the tomatoes are something to grow hydroponically where you're isolated from the soil, which is where the fungus from the tomato blight comes from. Who knows? But if you also know that last two years, this particular beetle showed up on this particular day, if there's any sort of preemptive thing you can do about that beetle, you know to do it the week before that happens. If you know that every year it got really warm, but there was always a frost here, in spite of what the almanac says, you know to hold your planting or put in protection. If you know anything consistently happens in your area, you can plan for it. So keep records. Keep a garden book, like Thomas Jefferson. Irrigate on a schedule. I've learned this more and more over the years, and it, it, it took me a long time, and I never really, I eventually thought, why are you so dim? Because this is going to sound unrelated, because one, one thing you don't irrigate is a fish tank. But you show me a fish tank on an automated timed light, and you are a hell of a less, le, lot less likely to have algae problems with it. Because the plants are going to grow optimally, because that light is on a timer. You didn't forget and leave it on overnight. You didn't forget to turn it on until noon on, those, on the weekends. That automation creates consistency. Irrigation the same way. So you need to figure out how much irrigation you need and, and automate that to the greatest degree possible. And I've done both, and it can work, and you don't have to do it. But if you can, you should. Because it also lets you go away and come back and everything's okay. Maybe there's a little weeding to do. But, you know, the person that looked in on your house for you while you were gone for a week in the summer didn't have that chore to do that they didn't actually do. That they swore to God they did, but everything's dead now. And if everything is dead, you know that they didn't do something wrong. Right? Uh, they didn't overwater, they didn't underwater, because they didn't have to. But if nothing else, it should be, I we, you know, I water every day, or I water every other day, or I water every third day. That all depends on your soil, your condition, your climate, and it may change throughout the year. And if you, you should, if you're doing raised beds, if you're putting a new installation in, there's no reason not to put irrigation in. And even if it is, like I said, those little mechanical timers are about eight bucks. And they, from anything from five minutes to two hours, and you just turn the dial, and they rotate around, and when they get back to zero, they shut off. And you figure out, yeah, I need five minutes of watering. Five minutes. Can't forget, done. And I would rather you do that part manually of turning the dial than not have any automation at all. Fertilize on a schedule. And that's on you. I guess if you get really sophisticated with inline fertility and stuff, you can constantly run small amounts of fertility through your irrigation system and all. That's beyond the scope of today. To me, knowing that I'm going to put out my fertility here, I'm going to do my Garrett juice soak here every three weeks. I'm going to spray with Garrett juice in the evening on Saturday evenings or whatever it is, and I'm going to do that. This is what my entire year looks like for my fertility regime. And then anything I see that, like, oh, that plant looks deficient, I'm going to give it a little shot. will make your life better. And then harvest frequently. 
harvest frequently. I can't believe how many people grow stuff till it goes like to seed or whatever. And if you harvest a lot, you'll find you get more production. Like peppers, this is huge with. People have tons of peppers. Harvest. It'll make more. If you don't harvest, it's got plenty of fruit load on. The plant has a big seed load on. It has no incentive to put energy into making more. Um, lettuces, you'll find if you'll harvest lettuce with cut and come again, one head of lettuce produces five heads of lettuce before it gives up or starts going to seed. So harvest frequently. And then no matter the technique, remember, soil's the key. We grow soil and we feed soil and soil grows plants. Always, almost every problem you have, you'll be able to find it in some deficiency in your soil. It's too wet, it's too dry, it's not got enough organic matter, you know, it, 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 there's a fungus in it, what have you. And almost always, adding fertility, adding compost, adding mulch will fix your problem. And one of the questions that Walker asked was, how do I know if your soil's too wet, too dry, whatever? If you pull back your mulch and go into your soil and it's moist, don't water it. It never needs to be anything more than moist. As it starts to get dry, bring it back to moist. That's all you got to do. And if you keep records, like I said, you'll figure out in July, I need to water at this frequency. In August, I need to water at that frequency. In September, I need to water at this frequency. And if it rains a lot, Shut it off. Don't water when your garden is soaked. But you don't ever want it to go dry. When you start to see plants kind of wilt, and it's not for another reason. It's not a bacteria or something like that. But it's due to lack of moisture. It's gotten too dry. It should never happen. It's going to happen. But your goal should be for it to never happen. And that's it, guys. I mean, my final thoughts on this are... We've been doing this since the dawn of man, growing gardens. Gardening is not agriculture. Gardening is horticulture. And horticulture vastly, vastly predates agriculture. The word agriculture means the culture of fields. I don't think most people understand that. It's not something we teach. We should That should be like... Jeff Lawton one time postulated an idea of like a book called 500 Things a Child Should Know by the Time They Graduate School. And, and of course, the inference that, that they will not be taught in school. And, and we, were, we were having a conversation on the air one time, and I said something like, water runs at 90 degrees of contour. And he said, that's one of them. That's a thing. Like, that is so basic. It means water rolls downhill. But it also means that it's right angle to contour. So if we understand contour, we can design entire landscapes off that one principle. And yet we don't teach that in school. We don't teach the significance of that in school. And one of the things we should be teaching in school, which I can see why we don't, because it, it leads to a discussion on how mankind is controlled by systems of the state and systems of industry. But agriculture doesn't mean growing food. It doesn't mean growing plants. It means cultivating fields. It's the cultivation of fields so that you can grow food. So what does horticulture mean? Horticulture means the cultivation of plants. 
Gardening is closer to horticulture than it will ever be to agriculture. And man has been doing horticulture, not for the 10,000 years they say we've been doing modern ag, which I think is closer to about 8,000 years, by the way. And globally, like where it's a main-centric system, it's more like 2,500 to 3,000. Horticulture's been done for a thousand generations. And that's something that should give you an abundance of confidence. That don't worry if not everything works. Do more of what works, less of what didn't work, and keep building fertility and keep records and understand the needs of your plants and the fertility. And the beauty is these beds that you put in this year will get better every year. As much as I was excited when we left the home I had in Arlington, I had garden beds there that I had taken care of for six years. Six years. Simple, four-by-eight, timbered, you know, landscape timber beds. And the one of the few things that really tore me up was when I pulled that mulch back and looked at that soil that I had built in those six years. And I was, I was at, it actually made a, a, a really it was a big deal to me that my real estate agent told me that the woman who bought the property was in love with the garden and she planned to keep doing it because I felt like all that work was not in vain. Somebody would continue it. That's what we're doing. We're growing plants through the culture of soil versus growing plants through the culture of a field because the culture of the field in modern agriculture is not the building of soil but the maintaining of the empty space so that we can make it do what we want. In horticulture, we are cultivating and caring for the soil so the soil can care for us by caring for our plants. You come at it with that philosophy, and whatever biome you're in, you will, and whatever limitations you have, you will figure it out for you. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, remember, a, a way you can support our show is doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll see all of the reviews I've ever done on products on Amazon. And remember, if it's there, I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it. If I needed another one, I'd buy that same thing or I wouldn't recommend it for you. Um, I believe that integrity is why I've been very successful with the Amazon T-SPAS program. Uh, and I thank all of you who do your online shop. Because no matter what you buy, you help support me no matter what it is. And if you're going to buy it anyway, well... Why not? doesn't take you but a couple extra seconds to do it. But I also have an item of the day every day for you. This is what I'm bringing around again. I found this product first two years ago. And I had this crappy grinder that I really wasn't happy with anymore. And my, my decent old grinder, it was a very, very old grinder, went to grinder heaven. And I needed a new grinder. And I was pretty much in love with the Carnivore by Cabela's. Except it was like $500. And I'd used one. Uh, owned by a friend of mine named Kevin of West Virginia. And I was impressed with it, but it was still $500. And unlike Kevin, I don't have a whole bunch of redneck buddies who shoot a whole bunch of deer that they don't want. Because Kevin grinds like 1,000 pounds of deer meat a year. You know, I get a deer or two a year, either go out hunting or pick up a couple off the road or maybe get one from a buddy. And I buy meat throughout the year, and sometimes I grind up four or five pounds at a time. And I just couldn't see how I would ever get an ROI on a 500-log grinder. And so I started research. I found the STX 3000 Turbo Force Grinder, 150 bucks. If it works, 
So I started going to forums. I didn't just read the reviews. And, like, everybody, including a lot of people doing, like, the raw pet food diet. And that's why you'll notice in the in the write-up on it from the manufacturer, it says not to grind bones. The reason it says not to grind bones is a whole lot of people grind bones in theirs, like chicken bones and stuff like that, to make cat food and dog food out of it. Um, so, yeah, I don't recommend you do it. But when I saw that people were doing it and it worked, it's like, I'm going to give this thing a shot. Man. I've got some videos of me doing some grinding on there, and I'm doing it one handed because I got the phone in my hand because the wife's not home. Um, this thing's a hoss. And one of the things I love about it, it comes th with three cutting blades. Most grinders, even expensive ones, come with one blade. Now, you got like a number 10 grinder, which is, uh, is by capacity. They're all the same. So it's not hard to get a new blade if the blade wears out or what have you. But they're $10 to $15 a piece. So the fact there's two extra ones, you're like 30 bucks worth of extra blades included it's got a whole bunch of different size uh plates for doing coarse to fine grinding and it does have a sausage stuffer attachment I've, i've used it it works okay i went and bought a lamb stuffer and i recommend if you're gonna do a lot of sausage stuffing buy a stuffer because it's so much better but for grinding this thing it just does a great job my advice though with grinders all grinders freeze your meat till it's almost frozen to where you can just pull the pieces apart It will grind better. While you're freezing your meat, throw the screw, the cutter, and the plate of your grinder in the freezer as well. In fact, even the whole front attachment pull, pulls out. Throw the whole thing in there. The colder everything stays, for the longer, the better your results will be. That's all grinders. Anyway, check this thing out. The STX Turbo Force 3000. This is why I talk about price-to-value ratio. I set a limit. I thought $500 for a grinder was just too much. I set a limit of $300. And I said, if I find a really, really, really great grinder for $299, I'll bite the bullet and I'll buy it. I couldn't find a better grinder for under $300. And the grinder that I chose was $150. If they sold this grinder for $250, I think people would buy it and not complain. They'd just sell less of them. They would just sell less is all. The fact this thing's $150, bucks, best grinder on the market, under $300 for half the price, check it out. The STX 3000 Turbo Force. I know a lot of you are in the middle of hunting season and got some stuff to grind. And I'll tell you, ladies, if your husband does a lot of his own meat processing stuff like that and has a crappy old hand crank grinder or something, you want to make him happy? Get him one of these. Uh, in fact, I shouldn't just say it that way. You know who just bought one of these and became a member of the STX 3000 Turbo Force Meat Grinder Club? Nicole Sauce, she sent me a picture of it said, no more misery with my grinding. Because um, she's got, basically it's raining deer at her place. Basically, she's got all kinds of friends that they'll bring a deer to her, she processes it for them, and they give her half of it. I need some friends like she has, I really do. Anyway, with that, remember you can always do your online shopping at T-Spaz. Let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is we're in concept albums, is by Volbeat. Now, Volbeat's not... Really one of my favorite groups, but uh, they made the cut into the concept album on John uh, Adams' list. Uh, the album this was on was uh, Outlaw Gentlemen and Shady Ladies. I don't think I need to explain the concept of that album. But the song is called uh, Lola Montez. Lola Montez was a dancer from the 1800s that became world famous, hung out with royalty hooked up with princes and kings, um, ended up eventually in the United States, 
made a fortune. Would, would you know? You talk. You think of you think of like a strip club. People throwing dollars at strippers. Uh, this gal would dance. Um, yeah, scantily clad for the time, but nothing like a strip club. And 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 miners would throw gold nuggets at her. She did a dance called the Spider Dance, and the concept was that the spiders were like running up her legs, and she was like pushing them off and touching herself and all. And uh, I even found like a kind of a historical piece on on Lola uh, Lola Montez, where they talked about what she did, and and, and the, the one lady talking about her said, you know, she didn't do anything that like Madonna wouldn't do on stage today. Lola Montez, from everything I can find, was way tame compared to Madonna. But for the time, it was very risque. In fact, it had just become even okay for women to perform on stage at all. So I think from the pictures I've seen, the guy that wrote the song from Volbeat said she was really beautiful. Okay, I guess if you've been in a mine for a while and hadn't seen a woman in three months, she's probably hot. Overall, not that big a deal. She was a master of marketing. But basically, she was a Madonna of the day because she was doing what nobody else would, so she stood out. She also died in her 30s of syphilis, tertiary syphilis, which means you had to have it a long time before it kicked back in, and they didn't know how to f treat it really back then. Uh, so maybe that was a mistake. <laughs> it tells you a little bit about the shady lady nature. It wasn't just an act. But it's a cool song because it invokes something from history that we tend probably not to learn much about. And there's all types of fascinating stories about people from not that long ago that uh, has made its way into music. And that's one of the things I love about music. You learn things that you otherwise wouldn't learn. If you want to learn more about Lola Montez, I think I said Martinez, Lola Montez, you can check out the uh, video I have linked for you in the show notes. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Shady in the timber, damn, blinding your eyes with a spider, damn.